0: Hello and welcome to We've Got History Between Us. This podcast is brought to you by VOICE, Volunteers in Collection Engagement. VOICE is an initiative led by seven volunteers at the Centre for Research Collections at the University of Edinburgh. And boy, does the CRC have history. Over the coming months, We've Got History will be exploring the different collections, archives and beyond, as well as the wider museum circuit and heritage sector. We're hoping to bring you interviews, discussion panels, and we'll delve into exhibitions, artifacts, and new acquisitions. We'll also shine a light on the different kinds of volunteering going on at the CRC. So just a disclaimer before we start this episode, we do discuss some topics that may seem disturbing to some, such as phrenology, human remains, dissection, and stuff about lymphatic systems. It is all very interesting, but it also isn't for the faint-hearted. This episode is the first of our new segment, Curation Killed the Cat, where we interview different curators at the museums of the university collections about all the work that they do, from exhibitions to handling strange specimens to outreach work. This first episode features Malcolm McCallum, who is the lead curator of the Anatomical Museum. The Anatomical Museum was established in 1726 at Old College Campus, before it was relocated to the Old Medical School in 1884. This collection consists of approximately 12,000 objects and specimens, which reflect over 300 years of anatomical studies at the university. It's still used today for teaching and is open on select days of the year to the public. It was recently accredited as well by Museums Gallery Scotland. So I think that's enough rambling for me. Um, Without further delay, hello Malcolm. Would you like to start with a bit about yourself, uh, how you came into this job and what you do at the museum?
1: Sure. Well, hi there, and thanks for inviting me on. Um, I listened to your earlier podcast with Emily, and I think the bar has been set quite high um, with all that (laughs) conservation chat, but I'll do what I can. So, um, yeah, my name is Malcolm McCallum, and I am the curator at the Anatomical Museum, and um, I've been working in a variety of museums for a long time. Um, I actually got quite lucky because I graduated. I did a Scottish history degree at Edinburgh, and... um, I got really lucky because, and this is actually going to date me quite badly, but when I graduated, the Museum of Scotland was just being built um, on Chamber Street, okay. <laughs> and it, it was the first. It was the first time that Scotland was going to have a museum of its own, if you like. And there was lots of things happening um, in the wider world. Scottish Scottish devolution was just on the way as well as a vote for Scottish Parliament in 1997. But it meant there was a lot of focus on um, Scottish history, and I was really lucky that um, I got one of the early curatorial assistant jobs at the Museum of Scotland and um, I went through a whole variety of um, contracts and different jobs at the Museum of Scotland kind of learning my um, sort of curatorial apprenticeship almost and then eventually after going to England and working various other museums I came to uh, the Anatomical Museum in 2013 I think it was and I was kind of the first um, professional curator there So I was involved in quite a holistic approach, looking at the collection. Um, First thing was just working out what we actually had. I was told initially we had something four or 5,000 objects. And um, as she's mentioned earlier on, the actual figure is probably three times that. So there's been a a voyage of discovery, I would say, for me.
0: (laughs) I'm glad we've set a good bar so far with the podcast. That's really the work of my co-worker, Lily. She's worked so hard on the last two. It's a really high standard. <laughs> so no pressure for me, I guess. It's also really interesting to hear about your history in museums alongside the history of museums in Scotland. And you actually just touched on my next question there. So because... This museum has such a vast history that spans over so much time and you have so many artifacts and specimens. Have there been any changes to the practices or to the way you exhibit objects since you've joined? Especially since you said just now about how you ended up finding more stuff in the collection that you had previously believed there being.
1: Yeah, there's been there's been a lot of changes. So when I came in, there was a honorary curator. So that was a professor of anatomy who was um, looking after the collection only a tiny percentage of his time would be actually dedicated towards the museum the museum staff were very proud of the sort of the, the anatomy staff were very proud of the museum and she said it's got this long history kind of 300 years of anatomy teaching back to 1726 really but I always describe it as you know in your house you've got a, a messy drawer where you put all the you know keys and pens <laughs> and things Well, without without being too harsh, the the museum store was the messy drawer. It had a little (laughs) bit of everything in it. So the first step was before you can do anything with the collection, you need to kind of know what you've got and before you can use it for research or engagement or teaching or display to do that. So the first thing myself and a couple of colleagues did was actually just go through it box by box and worked out what we had. So it was brilliant. I mean, it was a really good, it was like going back in time, even to the point of, some collections were wrapped up in newspapers from the 1950s. And so we're, we're kind of get a little bit distracted reading newspapers of what was going on in Edinburgh <laughs> in the 1950s. So it was kind of socially quite interesting as much as anything else. But what we had to do was in, implement on our road to, you mentioned accreditation, on our road to accreditation, we had to implement a whole load of things. We had to do, prove the collection, the management, the documentation side of things. We tried to make a consistency of the interpretation, which are professionally produced labels we tried to do new exhibitions open social media accounts did all the things you need to do like and put in a pest management plan to make sure that the collections weren't being eaten too much because um, <laughs> yeah. again with this store that's underneath the museum um, it's an old late Victorian building so it's susceptible to water damage and you know the collections have been preserved they weren't neglected they were just people didn't know what to do with them so they were put into a store and I think it's taken a long time for us to utilise the potential of the collection. So there's a lot to do and a lot of changes were made over a relatively short period in time.
0: That's actually really interesting to see how, you know, museums preserve and take care of their collections over time and what they use to do that. Did you find, I guess, this again links back to the museum's history, that there was a certain pressure for you to uphold a legacy when you approached renewing and changing things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think... You're aware of the historical importance of Edinburgh and the medical school in terms of the history of medicine. The building itself has got a certain stature. It's, you know, this Robert Rowan Anderson designed um, state-of-the-art as it was a medical school. that opened in 1884. It was the largest medical school in Europe at the time. And so the collections are associated with all these kind of great names of medicine. There's only been, 50, I think it's 15 anatomy professors. So it's quite a prestigious thing to an to anatomy professor will look after the collection as much as the curator as well so there's a huge reputational importance as well and you're aware that you're working quite a prestigious organization as well so which is good has good things but it's also got kind of barriers to break down as well in terms of mm-hmm. opening up to the public and being a bit more um, amenable to some of the things that we'd want to do in the museum itself
0: yeah definitely um Do you think with the new changes that you've made, like your social media and creating a new online presence, that the public's view of the museum and the reception of the museum has changed in any
1: way? It's hard to say because I think the public have always known the museum was there, but they weren't always clear how to actually access the museum, which isn't a great thing for museums if the public don't quite know how to get in. A lot of people thought we were only opening doors open day, so doors open day in September, would cause us a problem because you would have two and a half thousand, three thousand people turning up at the front door trying to get into a yeah. relatively small space. So yeah. part part of our challenge was to have re- I mean it's only monthly, but it was regular open days when we would open when we said we would and we would start to engage the public a little bit more. There's I think there's always been a fascination with medical museums. Mm-hmm. There's quite a lot of myth and mystery yeah, so. built up around about them. But I think I always remember one of the anatomy professors saying we've all got a working anatomical model our own body we've all got health histories we've all got you know awareness to some extent of disease and health or, or lack of health so it's it's not a it's not a museum that's focused that interest and kind of engage a little bit better with our audiences has been the challenge
0: yeah yeah So do you find that having limited numbers of days then open to the public affects the way that you approach your curation, like the way you create exhibits? Do you have temporary exhibits, which you find in normal museums, which are usually used to highlight aspects of collections that aren't normally displayed, things like that?
1: A little bit, but I think our priority, our sort of day-to-day role, if you like, is a teaching collection. So a lot of our focus is on research of the collection. So we facilitate research both within the university, but also um, people come from all over the world to look at the collection and examine it. So it's kind of academic focused in that way. Previously, all we'd have to do is open up the doors to the museum and the public would arrive and it was kind of guaranteed but what we've tried to do is diversify a little bit and um, what we do so we do have little temporary exhibition galleries well I say galleries it's two cases but what we don't have is much of a budget to do much with them so what we do is, right. is quite low level stuff but what we have introduced is try to do a little bit more in terms of activities on the day for the public as well
0: cool So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and move into a bit more of a serious topic regards to ethics. So it's no secret that you have a lot of human remains, such as the skeleton of William Burke, who was a well-known murderer from the 19th century. And I think having human remains has a lot of ethical implications. And it's definitely a topic that's coming to the forefront right now in the museum circuit with regards to things like repatriation. So what has been the museum's approach to that? And I guess your approach as well, to how you display these specimens, how you talk about them, and also how you address the issue of repatriation.
1: Uh, Well, there's a lot going on there, isn't there? (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually going to have to take notes, I think. (laughs)
0: Yeah, so this is one of my passions, the decolonization of museum spaces. So I thought I'd ask how you guys were going about it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's important to address all of these issues. What I would say is that we operate now into a legal framework. What we can and can't do with human remains is guided by a piece of legislation called the Human Tissue Act, which dates from 2006. And it actually refers mainly to human remains that are in fluids. So they've got the skin on them and are less than 100 years old so kind of within living memory but that actually doesn't account for very many of our collection items we've got very few if any human remains in the museum after about 1940 1950 but the complicating factor is where the medical school is is also where if you're going to donate your body to science you would your body would come in there so we share the building, the anatomy department, we share that with um, the body donation programme. So if you go into the museum, you'll see at the foyer downstairs, there's a book of remembrance. And on that book has got the names of people who have donated their bodies to science. So we've got to be aware that we've got a historical element with the collection, but we've also got uh, a teaching in anatomy. In terms of repatriation, what we do know is that a lot of the collection of human remains was done unethically, at least you know, in today's standards. And we know that um, there's lots of complicated histories in terms of how they collected. So again, there's legislation. That, so there's the Anatomy Act of 1832. So that meant that you, the, the museum or the anatomy school would take cadavers and to teach from people who have died in hospitals or asylums and locally, usually, who didn't have any family to look after their remains. So there's a, a precedence for mu- remains come into the collection that way. Mm -hmm. Further back in time, there's the Murder Act of 1750, I think it is, which has got a very dramatic sort of byline to it, which is an act for preventing the most horrid crime of murder, which meant that if you committed murder in Scotland, or indeed the UK, you weren't to be given a Christian burial, but a secondary level of punishment should be given to you. So it's trying to prevent people killing people. And one of the secondary punishments was that your body would be dissected by the medical school for teaching.
0: Yeah, I did see that on the website about William Burke and I was wondering how that worked.
1: Yeah, we might we might come on to that because without being too flippant about it, one of the problems was there wasn't enough people murdering people in Edinburgh to supply all yeah. the medical schools. Or they may have been murdering, but they weren't actually being caught and, and punished yeah. for it. So you've got these kind of legislation. So a lot of the pre-1832 bones and things in the museum could well be from people robbing graves as well. So there was some things happening right in our very doorstep that weren't particularly ethical. But the wider thing, and the one that really relates to repatriation is there was lots of collecting through the British Empire. So we've got a very colonial collection. The university is actually one of the few who's got a a policy on this at the moment, which is that it's it's Mm pro-repatriation. The university repatriated initially to Sri Lanka back in 1947. So that's quite early for a Western European collection. And um, at the moment, The policy dates from 1990 and it basically says that if uh, the university is comfortable with the claimant and we think it's the correct claimant from the original indigenous group that it would repatriate so it's not perfect but there are places where we have repatriated to the usual places that people know about like New Zealand and Australia and Fiji and most recently uh, again Sri Lanka last year so there's policies and procedures in place but we're aware that it's a a history with contested collections because human remains are so emotive and mm-hmm. they, they come in to us a whole variety of different ways as well. So the contemporary anatomists are, and myself are very keen to emphasise that times have changed, you know, and, and, you know, when it comes to body donation, it's entirely voluntary. You, you can't donate somebody else's body when they die. And similarly, historically, we're trying to find out a little bit more about who these people are. Who these individuals are. But the problem is that we do lack documentary evidence.
0: Okay, so because of that lack of documentation, then how are you going about that identification?
1: Well, at the moment, it's completely reactive, because if we started to actively research every single bone, it would take us a long time and a lot of resource. So we wait until there's an inquiry, will come in, and then we'll try and match up the inquirer's documentation and information, it could be a name, a place where they think the remains were taken from and we'll try to cross-reference it with our own. There are other ways you can do it. You could do a DNA matching as well if you get to that level. But again, there's cost implications as well. What I would say is that we are continuing to mine through our archive and try to make these connections and try to kind of join up some of the gaps we have in documentation as well to try and put names to these anonymous remains.
0: Well, that's... great start, honestly, with regards to repatriation and other ethical issues with the museum. So thank you for that answer, really interesting. So the next question I have is the last one of mine before we have a look at some of the questions asked by the public. So in 2016, the museum was given an accredited status by Museums Galleries Scotland. Has this resulted in any changes to how you run and manage your collections? And does the status provide things like protection or support for the museum?
1: It shows that we are meeting the standards that uh, we should be meeting, and it also kind of—I think it just from a very low base down—with a lot of help from colleagues in the CRC, you know, conservation colleagues and loans department, things like that we can build up a museum service that's kind of professional and it's appropriate as well so I think it's quite it's a good bargaining chip to have if you're accredited yeah. much as anything else yeah it's a bit of everything as, as I touched on it's kind of a general raising of standards to meet the kind of agreed UK museum standard so it gives you a little bit of professional integrity I suppose so it means that you can loan items from another accredited museum where you can loan to them much more easily it does open some funding streams so uh, Museums Gallery Scotland, the funding body would encourage us to apply for funds. So that might be for continuous collections care. So um, it might be we've got a large, I think we've got something like um, over a thousand artworks in the collection. A lot of them were used to teach anatomy. So we've had some money to have some conservation work done on them, for example, put them back on display. Um, so some quite rare things like that. I think also it's quite important to. Once you're accredited, it means your collections are more secure. It's kind of a general thing where you can't start selling bits of the collection to pay for repairs. Or, you know, if if you lose a bit of money through another income, you can't sell off bits. Or you you kind of get kicked out of the scheme and you become almost not welcome within the accredited museum world. So it gives us a sort of, a, I suppose, a bit of a professional security.
0: Okay, that's really interesting. I actually didn't know that. So I'm just going to move on to some of these questions from the public. I just wanted to say as well that I'm a really big fan of the anatomical museum. Good, good, I went in for my first year of university for one of my sociology courses, and one of the things I still remember is the death masks, which gave off a very Game of Thrones vibe. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. We've got lots of them. Which actually leads me to the first question. So someone asked, the death masks in your collection give a Hall of Faces vibe from the Game of Thrones series. Who is in this collection and are they just random members of the public or are they specific figures that we may know?
1: Yeah, um, well, it's a bit of everything. So the, the collection itself came from the Edinburgh Phrenological Museum, which was on Chamber Street. So if you go down, if you know Edinburgh, you go down Chamber Street and you look at the Crown Office, you will see, so it's opposite the National Museum. On the Crown Office, you'll see a building with stone heads on the wall, and they were phrenologists, mainly. So in there was a museum. So lots, hundreds of casts came over to the anatomy department in the 1880s. There's about 350 of them left. So the ones they've seen in the museum are about 20 out of 350, 360 casts. Do you want me to quickly just explain phrenology? Because that kind of impacts... Yeah, Yeah, definitely. So phrenology was a very weird thing, and It was an idea that the lumps and bumps in your brain or your skull would somehow indicate your character Mm -hmm. or your ability to be good at something or bad at something. But it also kind of went down very dark routes because it started to suggest or phrenologists believed there was kind of a hierarchy of uh, races as well. Mm -hmm. So phrenologists was a kind of a middle class white man's science. It became very popular in Edinburgh. There was two brothers called the Coombe brothers, George and Andrew Coombe, who basically went on lectures and did all sorts of events trying to prove that this science worked. People call it science, but at the time it was, sorry, people call it pseudoscience, but at the time it was very much a science. And I suppose the underlying thing, it was all nonsense Mm -hmm. as well. So, So what they would do, they would try to take death mass or life mass of people who they thought would have certain attributes so a good example would be if you committed murder like William Burke did, mm-hmm. you would expect him to have a large organ of destructiveness, which is meant to be this part of your head up here, just above your ear, I think it was, but you'd at the same time have a shrunken down organ of benevolence. Mm-hmm. So these are just terms that they came up with, you know, benevolence and destructiveness. And yeah. they thought that the parts of your brain were about benevolence and destructiveness. And then... Yeah. Unfortunately for them, the Burke one was completely the opposite of what they wanted it to be. And they couldn't quite get their theory to work. So it, it's kind of confirmation bias. You're trying to think of what somebody's skull would look like b- because you know all about them. Mm. So um, And they tried to apply it to the criminal justice system. So a lot of them for the masks are people who have committed murder. But they also applied it to um, mental health as well. They would also take famous people, authors, royalty, royalty. Um, soldiers so a good example is the skull of Robert the Bruce for example he was we've got a sort of cast of him the skull because you know what made him a medieval king what made him you know a good tactician and they try to work this out we've got the skull of Robert Burns so they tried to work out what made him a good poet you know his as you know his creativeness and all this sort of stuff would be enlarged so as people who are good at things or bad at things they tended to be males I think we've got about seven females in the collection and they tended to be people from asylums locally as well right. so it was like that kind of it, it kind of pushed that kind of the mad woman idea as well mm. you know so it was a, i mean it, on the face of it it's quite a laughable thing but it's, it's serious as well because a lot of people and some people still believe in phrenology you know it, it is it is um oh, it's yeah. it's it's eugenics and it it's not really appropriate what is left with this huge collection so it's a little bit of famous people in the cast collection Kings, queens, royalty, authors, politicians, but it's also types. So it could be a racial type, or it could be a, a, a you know a person who's deemed to have some mental illness as well. So a bit, of a, a bit of everything for everyone.
0: Wow. Okay. So that's that's quite a big variety of individuals, then. Right. So the next question is: Would you be able to tell us a bit about how William Burke came to be in your collection?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much. I was going to say pretty much straightforward question because actually it was the trial judge, guy, Sheriff Smith, when he was giving his verdict, his sentencing, he said, so the, the body would have been dissected anyway as part of the murder act. So he'd have been he'd been hanged and then he'd been dissected and Edinburgh was the local medical school. There was a second part of the the, the sentencing where the sheriff said, your body, your, sorry, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but your your skeleton... If it's ever customary to display skeletons, yours should be preserved and displayed to teach future generations of your crimes. Mm-hmm. So basically, that was the ruling in 1829, and that's what happened. So I think that's that's a sh- that's a short term yeah, yeah, a- shorthand <laughs> answer. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so that leads us into our last question, which I personally am very interested to hear the answer to. So, is there an artifact or specimen that you find really interesting that not a lot of people know about?
1: Um, that a lot of people do know about or don't know? About.
0: That don't know.
1: Okay, so my answer was going to be Burke, but I think everyone knows about Burke because he's, he's so <laughs> iconic. There's another really interesting specimen. So, it's another, well, this time it's anonymous murderer from earlier than Burke, 1780. He's in the middle of the museum and he's been preserved and, and lacquered. Um, he's in, but we don't know anything about him. But what's quite important about him is that he's been injected with mercury in his lymphatic system. And we think it's one of the earliest attempts to show the lymphatic system with this technique. And it was one of the early Alexander Monroe's the second one, so one of the professors of anatomy, Alexander Monroe Secundus, who was doing this work. And I mean, all taking all the gory side, away just as a work, like a work of craftsmanship, to be able to do that to a cadaver with no preservation techniques, probably working under candlelight against the clock before the body decomposes, to inject lymph glands and then to preserve the body and then display it. I think I don't, just the mind boggles how what skills you need to, to do that. So yeah. what's important about that is when you, once you stand, start to understand lymphatics, you start to understand things like the spread of cancer. So it's really important. And when you speak to the current professor of anatomy, who incidentally part of his role, skipping back a little bit, is to be the custodian of the skeleton of bark as an official part of his job title. But if you speak to, <laughs> if you speak to him, he says, actually what they found in 1780s is remarkable considering what we know now you know, in terms of mapping that particular system. And he said, you know, considering all the techniques that we have now, medical imaging techniques, to do that and to find what they did was amazing. So we think that is pretty much the only example of its type anywhere in the world. So it really shows that Edinburgh in the 1780s was still pretty much at the forefront of medical learning and teaching as well. So for me, that's quite an important one. And it's only six feet away from William Burke. skeleton.
0: That is so interesting. I, I'm i kind of annoyed I didn't know about that when I went because I definitely would have spent more time looking at it and appreciating it.
1: And wow. I suppose it's one of these things that we need to make more of it. I think that's a the problem. The, the museum is very much for medical students. It's a mm-hmm. student resource space. It's a study space. There's occasionally lectures in there. But if you just wander down, I think we need a little bit more of a, hey, look at this. This is really important, you know, mm-hmm so i think that's something to think about as i think for us as well that we interpret the collections
0: so just to clarify mainly for myself is the museum only open on select days because it's a study space
1: yeah yeah i mean and also um, again due to this the human tissue act we need a licensed teacher of anatomy to be in the building when the museum's open so that's okay. so it's, that's somebody who is kind of legally responsible for for the the collection i suppose okay
0: would that be for them to inform people when they come in to visit?
1: That's for, I'm not entirely sure. It's just a—it's sort of a legal requirement. So, for example, if we were loaning human remains to another museum, we'd need them to have that license and to have a, a license holder as well to do that. So, but the day-to-day role of the museum, in, in inverted commas, normal times, is for student study and student research. And what we're trying to do is, Use as much of the collection as we can to feed it into the curriculum as well, or to encourage a particular postgraduate study where we can allow a bit more destructive sampling, for example. So, we're taking DNA analysis, things like that as well.
0: Cool. Well, that's all the questions that I have for you today. That was really informative and it provided a great insight into the work that you do and the vast collections you have. I'm sure. I'll get in touch again maybe to do more on the stuff that you have, maybe talk to the anatomical professor that's there as well. But yeah, thank you so much for joining me on Zoom. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. No
1: problem. Yep, thank you very much. I really enjoyed that.
0: So if you want to learn more about the Anatomical Museum, I'll put the link for their website in the description of this podcast. Additionally, you can follow them on Twitter at T V Place for more updates, or you can like their Facebook page as well, which I will also link in the description of this podcast. You've been listening to We've Got History. This was an episode of Curation Killed the Cat. Thanks to Laura Beattie and the volunteers behind Voice, Catherine Alexander, Connor Wimblett, Daisy Collins, Evie Stevenson, Lily Mellon, Martha Brownhill, and Tessa Rodriguez. This episode was hosted by Tessa Rodriguez. The head curator of the Anatomical Museum was Malcolm McCallum. This episode was edited by Tessa Rodriguez cover art by Louisa Grieve, and musical contributions by Chris Murdoch. Please follow this podcast for more We've Got History Between Us. Additionally, you can follow voice on social media at underscore voice underscore ed for more updates on future episodes and other exciting outreach content we have for you. Thank you for listening to this podcast, and we'll see you next time.